I enjoyed uh, praising the Lord with all you guys. I don't know how many nations we have here tonight. I would guess at least, I would guess 15 to 18 maybe. Uh, foretaste of heaven Amen. to praise our risen King together. Um, and what a joy it is to be with you. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else in the world than right here with you worshiping Christ. Um, I could give you 10,000 guesses and you would never guess what I'm about to tell you about myself. You would never guess it, unless you were here last year on Easter, because I always make this confession at Easter on Resurrection Sunday. Anyone want to hazard a guess? Um, who said, what, someone said, it's my favorite? I love, I love Resurrection Sunday, but I don't like preaching on Resurrection Sunday. Have you ever heard a preacher say this before? It's outrageous. It's outlandish. But I don't like preaching on Resurrection Sunday for a very good reason. It's just too big. It's, it's too big. Uh, I don't feel it's one of the occupational hazards of being a preacher. You know you can never get there. You know you can never get Jesus big enough you can never get Jesus beautiful enough. And particularly when you're talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God, you just have this overwhelming sense that I cannot even begin to touch the hem of His garment as we talked about last week. God has been nailed to a tree. God has been nailed to a tree. That unbelievably awful and unbelievably wonderful moment. God has sent His Son to die for His people. I have a lot of really good theology books in my library. And I go there to, to look and see what the greatest minds in the history of the church have, had, have, have said about the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And I scanned my books for the perfect quote, but I realized a number of years ago there is no perfect quote about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. But I realized that the perfect quote would be, in fact, unquotable. Right? It would be unquotable. Because what wells up in me is stunned breathless, unspeakable awe. And beloved, if you're getting it and if you're understanding it, we talked about it last week, you too will be in awe of what this awesome God has done in our behalf. I am has been nailed to a tree because He loves His people. He is the great warrior shepherd. The good shepherd. And he lays down his life for his people. God says it in Hebrews 2, 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's only, as we said it last week, there's not a hundred ways to God. There's not ten ways to God. 
There's not five ways to God. There's not two ways to God. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. That's it. One way. One way to Jesus Christ. And I would say, as I said last week as well, if you're not in awe of the fact that the Son of God has allowed Himself to be scourged and crucified by the creatures that He created, you're not really understanding it. And I don't think you're really believing it. So as we celebrate the resurrection of our awesome God today, it seemed good to me to, rem to remember His death. If we're going to talk about His resurrection, we need to talk about His death and make sure that we understand what all of this is about. Some of you may re remember Mel Gibson's movie some years ago, The Passion of the Christ. The allegation was made that it was anti-Semitic. But who was it that killed God? What does, the, what does the, the Bible say? Who killed God? The Bible's very clear. The Jews? Yes. Acts 4.27. The Gentiles? Yes. Acts 4.27. But preeminently, the Father slayed the Son. And the Son laid His life down willingly. This is a God-ordained, God-sanctioned event. This didn't happen by accident. Jesus didn't get caught in a corner and end up on the cross. It's why He came. He came to die. He told Pilate, this is why I was born. He came to die. We need to always remember that. Peter said it great in Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 23, as he preached to the Jews. He said, This man, being Jesus Christ, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross. We see that beautiful mystery there. What men of their own free will meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant for good. Men of their own free, depraved, rebellious will murdered the Son of God. God of His own free, gracious, loving will redeemed His people through it. you got to love the workings of a sovereign God. Again, ultimately, God the Father, Romans 8.32, delivered up His Son. And God the Son... John 10, 18, laid his life down of his own initiative. So you have to always remember about the cross. You have to always remember this. Don't ever forget it. It is God ordained. It is God decreed. It is God planned. It is God initiated. It's a God-centered event. God has come to redeem a people for Himself. It is God's idea. With resolute and unwavering premeditation, Jesus was born to go to the cross. He was born to go to the cross. So why is He doing it? Why, why, is, why has God allowed Himself to be scourged and to be uh, nailed to a tree by His puny, dust-in-the-wind creatures? Why has He allowed it? John chapter 10, He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Good Shepherd. 
And He's come to save His people. I love how the Jews exclaimed about it in Exodus 15. He is a warrior. You remember when He saved them at the Red Sea and the, the Jews cried out, our God is a warrior. And beloved, on that cross, He puts Himself between His people and Satan and sin and death and hell. Jesus says, no one takes My life. No man no group of men, no army, no group of armies, no demon, no army of demons takes my life. I lay it down for my people. I lay it down. He is the awesome warrior shepherd. Most of you remember in the, the account of the Gospels that Pilate tried to play the middle. You remember, right? You remember, Pilate was trying to play the middle the whole time. And I'm just going to make a sidebar application here. You know, there are still millions of people sitting in Christian churches trying to play the middle with Jesus. Amen? They're still trying to find that nice, soft, comfortable religious spot. That lukewarm spot. But we know how Jesus feels about lukewarm. Christianity. He says, I hate it. I'll spew it out of my mouth. Beloved, you know why God hates lukewarm Christianity? At least one reason. Because God doesn't do anything lukewarmly. Right? God really can't even relate to such a thing. God can't even relate to that. God has never afforded men an option. We must declare for Christ or we are condemned. There is no other way we are we either love him let me just say it this way we either love him or we don't know him at all and if we don't know him at all we are alienated from our creator we are under judgment you remember Pilate repeatedly said i find no guilt in him but to satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders, he had Jesus scourged. I'm sure you remember. How many of you have seen Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ? The scourging in The Passion of the Christ, it's very, I think, very realistic. Um, I think it's very realistic. Let me just describe a Roman scourging to you. It was a brutal and hideous torture. The, the Romans used a whipped a whip braided with leather strips, and at the end of these strips would be metal balls or sharp pieces of bone or shards of metal. And the, 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 the balls would, would bruise the skin, and then the, the shards of metal and sharp bone would rip open the skin. God would have received 39 lashes. His shoulders, his back, his buttocks, and his upper leg, legs would have been laid bare. If you've seen the movie... That's a very accurate depiction. Historians tell us that many times the back was so shredded that parts of the ribs, spine, veins, muscles, and even internal organs would sometimes be exposed from a Roman scourging. Historians tell us that men died of being scourged. I am has allowed his puny little creatures to scourge him. Why? Why? We talked about it last week as Jesus rode in on that little donkey fold. You remember what the people were saying? Does anyone remember from last week? What were the people crying as, as God rode into Jerusalem? Hoshiana. The Hebrew prayer. Hoshiana. 
Save us, please, God. Save us, please. That's why He's come to Jerusalem. That's why He lets His puny little creatures scourge Him. He's answering the prayer that God answered in eternity past. He laid down His life for His people. Isaiah 53.5 I trust you know the text. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. John 19, two, uh, verses 2-3 through three tells us that after being scourged, uh, a crown of thorns was put on God's head and a purple robe was put on Him and He was mocked and He was hit in the face. Matthew 27, 30 tells us that as they, 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 that they spat upon God and they beat Him in the head with a reed. John 19, 5 and 6, uh, Pilate says to the crowd, Behold the man! And the chief priests cried out and they said, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! John 19, 15, Pilate says, Shall I crucify your King? And what did the people say? We have no King but Caesar! They had utterly rejected their Messiah. The Jews have utterly rejected their Messiah. And Pilate, the Scripture tells us, John 19.16, delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. John 19.17 tells us that Jesus carried His own cross beam at least part of the way to the place of death. Let me just tell you briefly about the procession. As He was sentenced, He would be dispatched and there would, be, there would be four Roman soldiers guarding him and they would march him through the city and a fifth Roman soldier would be carrying a placard and, and it would state what his crime was. What was his crime? Anyone remember? He said he was king of the Jews. Well, that's no crime at all, right? It's just a fact. He, and he's not simply king of the Jews. He's king of all the cosmos. That was his crime according to men. That was his crime. Because crucifixion was so horrible, many men had to be dragged there to be executed. But if we read our New Testaments, we understand that Jesus was not dragged. In fact, carrying his own crossbeam at least part of the way. Isaiah 53 7. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter. John 19 17 through 18 tells us that they took Jesus to Golgotha and there they crucified Him. First they stripped God naked and then the Romans would lay Him down on the cross beam and they would take seven inch spikes and they would drive them through His wrists. Not through His hands, but through His wrists, crushing the medial nerve. And they would hoist God vertically and they would drive seven inch spikes into His feet, crushing again and severing nerves. And as the vertical beam was hoisted and dropped into the hole, if you saw Gibson's movie, it was very accurate. There would just be a thud when the, when the uh, cross hit the bottom of the hole and both of God's shoulders would just be thrown out of socket as the beam hit the bottom of the hole. And let me just read an excerpt from a book describing crucifixion. And I want us to... I want us to relive this. 
Because I want us to understand what it costs. I want us to understand what it costs for us to be redeemed. This is what uh, the book says about crucifixion. Once the victim is hanging in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and diaphragm put the chest into the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale, the victim must push up on his feet. So the tension on the muscles would be uh, eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the feet, eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the victim would then be able to relax down and take another breath in. Again, he had to push himself up to exhale, scraping his raw back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on until complete exhaustion would take over and the victim would not be able to push up anymore and therefore he would be unable to breathe and he would die. In the crucifixion of a man, the entire nervous system was racked with pain. Bones were pulled out of joint. Ligaments and muscles were stretched beyond endurance. Restriction of blood flow created an acute sense of oppression upon the chest, dehydration, fever, pounding headache, the scorching Middle Eastern sun, stinging and biting insects, feasting upon his wounds. Crucifixion was the annihilation of a man. It was the utter destruction of a man. I've shared this with you before, but I think it's, I think it's interesting. You know what the word excruciating means, yes? You've heard the word excruciating. It's from the Latin. Um, the prefix ex simply means intense. Uh, the root of the word cruciare means to crucify. This is where the word excruciating comes from. The torture was so heinous that they created a word to describe it. You know, when Jesus told His men to take up their cross and follow Him, <laughs> he, they, they all knew exactly what He meant. You know, I think in the modern era, we, we tend to compromise on that. We tend to rationalize that. But they all knew what He meant. Crucifixion was the death of a man. Jesus was saying, die to yourself and come with Me and really live. Which is the message of Scripture. So let me pause here just for a minute. Make sure we all understand what this is about. What is all of this about? Why is Jesus on the cross? Because of my sin. And because of your sin. You know, many reject Christianity because they're offended by the savage, bloody cross. They prefer a religion that is pretty and proper, full of pomp and pageantry. But the cross, beloved, gives us some small insight as to how ugly your sin is to God. If you're offended at the cross, you're offended at your own sin. Because that's what it is. I want to reiterate what we talked about last week. God is not merely a little miffed at your sin. He's not merely a little put out at your sin. Remember what we talked about last week. What was that 
famous sermon of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Edwards reminded us that God is dreadfully provoked. He is dreadfully provoked by the rebellious sin of man. Dreadfully provoked. If you look at it, look it up in the, the, the Bible, you'll see 16 times in front of the word wrath, you will see the word fierce. God is dreadfully provoked. God hates sin. It is heinous. It is monstrous in His eyes. You know, that doesn't fall easily on modern ears. We think so casually about sin. Do we not? But beloved, every time you entertain a casual thought about sin, you remember the cross. You remember the cross. You remember that bloody cross. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, he said, Who can know the fullness and power of God's anger? Someone tell me. Who can know the fullness of God's wrath? Someone tell me. Who knows it? Jesus Christ knows it. He took every bit of it for my sin and the sin of His people. He understands about the wrath of God. He knows. Those of us in Christ will never know personally, although we will behold the damned in hell. But we will never feel that wrath personally. Jesus has taken it from us. Jesus has taken it from us. So let me ask you, beloved, a little application here. Are you still playing with sin in your life? Do you have some sin in your life that you've not confessed and repented of? I want you to think about the cross. And then I want you to have, I want you to reconsider about the sin that you may be playing with in your life. Jesus calls us to repent, to be holy. None of us do it perfectly, but this is our call. Isaiah 53:10. But God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, to render him a guilt. Offering. That's what Jesus is for every born-again Christian. A guilt offering. You guys know the great text, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made Him the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I say it to you all the time. We were enemies, but now we're... Someone tell me. Sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Christ. If that doesn't take your breath away, I think you're probably unconscious. We were dust, disassembled particles of dust. Then we were enemies. Oh, now we're sons. Yes, and we're co-heirs. Co-heirs with Jesus. We have been radically reconciled to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this and I don't want you to ever forget this. Don't ever forget this. What God's holiness demanded, God's love provided in the cross. Do you understand? God requires perfect holiness. He requires that. His holiness and justice demands that. But Jesus, Jesus imputed that to us through His 
finished work on the cross. What God's holiness demanded, God's love provided. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget it. Isaiah 53.6 But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Some of you who know your Bibles know that Jesus was alive on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. A total of six hours. Matthew 27.45 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. This dark darkness was symbolic of God's curse which fell on Jesus as our sins were laid upon Him. The darkness was a divine judgment as the Father turned His back on the Son. We've talked about Jesus' physical suffering, but beloved, it's my contention, and I'm sure most of you would agree, that it was nothing compared to the emotional and spiritual suffering. For an eternity past, He had been in perfect fellowship with the Father. Perfect oneness and intimacy with the Father. And now that has been broken as He took my sin upon Himself. One theologian said it like this, from the sixth to ninth hour, Jesus suffered in silence the torments of hell. From a human standpoint, this was a limited period of time. However, for Jesus, the divine Holy Son of God, it represented, represented an eternity of suffering. I believe that's true. Matthew 27.46 reads, At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And immediately the darkness is dispelled. The Father receives the atoning sacrifice of His Son for the sins of His people. The darkness is dispelled. The veil is rent. The earth shakes. The rocks split. And tombs are open. And Jesus cries out, It is finished! And beloved, this is not the cry of a defeated martyr. This is a victory cry. It has been completed. I have saved my people. In effect, is what the Lord is saying. Luke 23.46 records the last words of Jesus on the cross. And He says, Father, into Thy hands I commit my spirit. Matthew 27.50 tells us that He yielded up His spirit. And I want you to, to note that He yielded it up. Again, no man took His life. He willingly laid it down and gave it up to redeem His people. You remember what Jesus said in John 10.18 I have authority to lay down my life. And as I said earlier, He has authority to take it up again. That's why we're here this evening. We are not worshiping a dead martyr. Amen? We are not worshiping a dead martyr. We're here to worship the risen Savior. Our warrior shepherd has laid his, his life down for us. And He has taken it up again for us. I'm not going to waste any Good pulpit time um, talking about the skeptics who try to explain away the resurrection of God. Some contend that this is some kind of mass hallucination. Some contend that Jesus wasn't really dead. He simply uh, had a, a period of swooning on the cross. Others say that the disciples stole His body. If you will look at these allegations with any integrity, none of them hold up to scrutiny. 
If you have a problem with these, if you have a problem with any of these allegations against the resurrection of Jesus, read this book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He does a really good job on that. By the way, the books are free. If you, if you want one, please take one. Lee Strobel was a Yale-educated um, Chicago Tribune editor, an atheist and a skeptic, and his wife got converted. His wife became a Christian. So he says, well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to look into this. <laughs> of course, you know what happened, right? The Lord converted him as he began to look into this. Strobel says this, People just grasp at straws in trying to deny the resurrection. But nothing fits all the evidence better than the explanation that Jesus is alive. Although I've tried, I cannot think of any more thoroughly attested event in ancient history. He concludes, I was ambushed by the evidence. It would require much more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to come to Jesus. I love it. It's a pretty good book. I would encourage encourage you to read it if you have questions about this. The Bible affirms that Jesus appeared to no fewer no, appeared no fewer than 11 times uh, over a period of 40 days to at least 500 plus people. Okay? This is what the Bible says. And I want to spend the last few minutes together highlighting one of those appearances of Jesus to his people. I want to say Real Christians don't believe He's risen merely because the hard evidence is there. We love it when scholars pile up hard evidence. We love it. Praise God. Go Lee Strobel. Pile up some more evidence. But that's not why I believe. Why do you believe? Is it because scholars can pile up evidence? That's not why. Ultimately, we believe. We believe the same reason that Mary Magdalene believes. And she's, her, her encounter with the Lord is, is recorded in John chapter 20. I'm going to read to you just a couple of verses. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 11. John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she, when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. We see that Mary is weeping for no good reason. <laughs> we see that she has much love, but she has no faith, right? She has no faith. This is one of the amazing things about the resurrection. None of his people believed. None of his people believed it. Not one of them. Not one of them believed He was going to come out of the grave. So she's, she's weeping for no good reason. Jesus is there. And beloved, this is a great application for you and me. He's there. If you belong to Him, He's there. In your problem, in your distress, He's there. God's never not there with His people. He's there. She just doesn't recognize that He is 
there with her. But why does Mary ultimately believe? Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, what does He say to her? Mary. That's why she believes. Nobody could say her name like her God and her Savior. When He spoke her name, it was full of God-sized love and God-sized intimacy. Mary. And if you belong to Christ tonight, you've heard, you've heard Him call your name. You've had an encounter with Him and you've heard Him call your name. You've heard that. That's why we believe we've had a genuine personal encounter with the living God. The beautiful warrior shepherd calls His sheep by name. And we, we know His voice. And John chapter 10, we follow Him. We go with God. He really means for you to follow Him. I know I say this to you all the time. But He means it. He doesn't mean for you to play religion. He means for you to go with Him. And obey Him. As radically as He has reconciled you, He has called you to radical obedience. Jesus is the consummate radical, the consummate revolutionary. We've talked about it many times. And He's calling us to radical lives of obedience. That people would see the reality and beauty of Jesus off our lives. They would read it. They would see it. They would smell it. They would taste it. Jesus said in John 10 about Himself and His sheep. And I just want to say this because I want you to hear it. I'm going to say it again. I know my own and my own know me, and they follow me. John chapter 10. Go read it for yourself at your leisure. And Jesus told the unbelievers, you remember what He said to the, the Pharisees? He says, um, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Remember? You don't hear my voice. I know that many people hate it when God talks like this, but this is how God talks. He says, I call my sheep by name, and they know me, and they know my voice. Mary immediately recognized the voice of her Creator, Redeemer, God. And if you believe tonight, it's because you have had that same encounter. So here we are 2,000 years later worshiping Jesus Christ. He is who He says He is, beloved. He is I Am. He is our uh, Creator. He is the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, risen, ascended, returning God. And He's coming back. He's coming back for His people. And before Him, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, even the damned, pardon me, Philippians chapter 2, will bow their knee to King Jesus. And though most of the world, they believe we are hopeless simpletons, thinking that we worship a dead Jewish carpenter. The world uh, takes our God's name in vain. He, they use it as a slang word or a curse word. But that will stop one day when King Jesus splits the clouds. That will stop. And again, every knee will 
while Jesus says, I am coming quickly. And we say as His people, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm just going to close. I'm going to read a text to you. Revelation 5. You can turn there if you want to. He is the risen King and He reigns. He's reigning right now. He's reigning right now. And I just want us to have this picture of Him in our hearts and minds as we finish celebrating Resurrection Sunday. King Jesus is on His throne. Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. John writes, and I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came, and he took it uh, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Thou hast made them to be a kingdom uh, and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. Verse 11. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That is our King Jesus. Hallelujah. King Jesus is risen. Amen? King Jesus is risen and will never grow weary of praising Him. As I say to you often, for a billion eternities, we'll never grow weary of praising this awesome God for who He is and what He's done. Our great warrior, shepherd, King has redeemed us utterly and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from Him. Beloved, rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks. 
Go with Jesus. Follow Jesus. Give yourself away to Jesus. Be abandoned to Jesus. You have, you have a few moments left on this planet. You're vapor upon the earth. Don't you waste one more day compromising with the world. You go be with Jesus. You go do what He's telling you to do. You be poured out in the local church. You serve the church. You support the church. Your Christianity can't be part-time, beloved. Or it's no Christianity at all. Let's take seriously what God has done and what God has said. We have been radically redeemed. Let us not be lukewarm. Let us not be lukewarm Christians. God forbid that we would be lukewarm Christians. Give yourself away, beloved. Give yourself away to this awesome God. Let's pray together. Father, it's just, it's too big. It's too big. It's too beautiful. It's too awesome. <laughs> As we often confess, there is no God like you. There is no God like you. No one saves like you save. No one loves like you love. We praise you, awesome God. Yes, as we contemplate the things we've talked about tonight, there is no adequate, there are no adequate words, either in the tongues of men or angels. We simply confessed our stunned, breathless, unspeakable awe. King Jesus, our great King, our incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, risen, returning God. We praise Him tonight with all our heart. And oh Lord, I pray that we would be serious disciples. I pray that we would walk like sons and daughters of God. I pray that we would be out in the world living this awesome Gospel, pointing to Jesus, that many might come to know Him through our witness. Lord, I pray that we would be in all of these things and we would live out that awe for the glory of Jesus. We pray in His awesome name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> we sing the last song together. Lead me to the cross.